0: Why do you think people are so uh, give you such a weird look when you tell them you're a psychiatrist? Well, because they because he never mind them. You're gonna answer for him, Stuart. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I can read his mind.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to the Curbsiders. I'm Matt, the Internal Medicine Podcast that uses expert interviews as to opposed bring you- to external. <laughs> to bring you clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge. I'm Dr. Matthew Watto, here with my co-hosts, Dr. Stuart Brigham. Hello. And Dr. Paul Williams. <laughs> hey, man, <Matt. laughs> Why are you laughing? So
1: uh, what are we going to do tonight, guys? Yeah, we're going to talk about uh, DJMC.
0: Yeah, that's Looking right. Looking forward to it. <laughs> On this episode, our guest is Dr. Marius Commodore, Dr. Commodore completed medical school at Emory before going through his residencies in internal medicine and psychiatry at Rush University Medical Center in Chicago, Illinois. He is dual boarded in internal medicine and psychiatry and is interested in the integration of psychiatry in the general medicine practice, as well as in the business of medicine. He has a voice for radio, but a face for public television. Uh, Paul wrote that, Dr. Commodore, if you're listening. (laughs) He cannot be stopped. He can only be contained. He is Marius Commodore.
1: I hear the conversation is very stimulating.
0: Well, it is a very stimulating conversation. Just to set it up for the audience, we go through the diagnosis and treatment of of depression. Specifically, we talk about how to titrate medications, how to choose your agent, how long the treatment course should be, and pretty much everything you need to know to feel comfortable starting a patient on medication, and how to follow them. I think it's a really valuable episode, and please enjoy.
1: And I'm only sad because we didn't talk about iron. Sorry,
0: Stuart. I know. (laughs) Welcome back to the Curbsiders. Hello, Matthew. Hi. This is your host, Dr. Matthew Otto, here with my co-hosts, Dr. Stuart Brigham. Hello. And Dr. Paul Williams.
2: Hey, Matt. How are you?
0: And we are so glad to have with us tonight Dr. Marius Commodore from Temple University Hospital in Philadelphia. Hi, Marius. How are you?
3: Oh, I'm doing well, Matt.
0: Thanks for taking some time away from the family to uh, play around with us on air here.
3: Oh, not at all. Believe me, this is is easy work compared to the family.
0: (laughs) So
3: I'm happy happy to be here.
0: I, I understand you have uh, your first child, have had your first child recently?
3: He is. He's uh eating, pooping, sleeping machine. Wonderful.
0: Uh, okay, that's good. Yeah.
3: Yeah, it's, He's, he's uh, he has uh, from all three basic food groups. <laughs> Excellent.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Matthew and I are very well uh, versed in, in all of that. Yes.
3: Right. And Matthew in particular, you're quite feckoned. Stur- well, Stuart I, I, I'm, actually I'm has more fecond. kids than me. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, my God. I've got five. I didn't know that was possible.
0: <laughs> now, I'm not familiar with this word feckin'. I don't know. I like it, it seems to have something to do with bearing children. So if that's... It has
3: to do right. It, is, it means fertile. <laughs> mm.
0: Yes, I have had a couple. I have four. Stuart has five. Stuart is uh, more crazy than I am. That's right. Wow. <laughs>
3: I don't know Hi. how you guys do it. I only have one, and I'm thinking to myself, "Hmm, vasectomy doesn't sound so bad right now."
1: Well, vasectomy in my case is probably better than fecundity.
0: My <laughs> <laughs> my my answer is a wife who is a uh, pretty incredible, and that's uh, I I if anything impede I I do not help at all. I probably make the kids crazier, but yeah, so I'm spoiled. Uh, well, best of
3: health to all of them. <laughs>
0: Well, at this point, I would like to kind of jump into our the upfront questions we like to ask, our rapid fire questions. You can give us some some brief answers to these. When someone asks you what you do, how would you explain that?
3: Oh, I tell them I'm a psychiatrist because it's just, it. the look on their face is always so classic. <laughs> but I mean, I, I think of myself really as just a physician, you know, that I did the double boarding and all of that but I really like to say that I'm a psychiatrist. It makes for a much better cocktail party.
0: <laughs> I would agree. And and we've said this many times on the show. Paul's mom still doesn't know what an internist is. She thinks he's like a perpetual intern. Is that right, Paul?
2: <laughs> she's not incorrect. I feel like she's not that far off from the truth, actually. So that's
3: more credit It's my mom. It's a labor of lifelong learning, gentlemen. Labor of lifelong learning.
0: Hmm. How much extra time is it to do the psych psych board on top of when you're, when you're doing those dual boards, how, how long was your total residency?
3: The residency was five years. So essentially four, if you think of it as four month rotations, it was, what is it? 30 rotations of one and 30 rotations of the other. So one year longer than a categorical psych residency, two years longer than a categorical internal medicine residency.
0: Yeah, that's uh, that sounds like a long time. But, Half uh, a decade, man. Half a decade. <laughs> so, why do you think people are so, uh, give you such a weird look when you tell them you're a psychiatrist? Well, because they, because he, never mind You're going to answer for him, Stuart? <laughs> <laughs> I can read his mind. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Which would be better than being a psychiatrist, actually. But, um, you know, I think that people. People sort of don't know what to make. The second, the second question is, are you analyzing me right now? Which is, of course, no, because I've just had a second drink. But I mean, I, I think that I think people have this sense that you're peering right into them, and sometimes you know you're not really. But clearly, I'm aware of it enough that I try to use it as some kind of psychological tool. But so, um, I think people have a people. People worry about that psychiatrists know something about them that they don't know themselves or that they don't want other people to know. And I don't know if that's the truth at all. I think you just sometimes a cigar is just a cigar.
0: (laughs) Good answer. What is a book that you think every physician should read? Hmm. You know, I don't know if
3: it's. It doesn't have to be medical. Oh, sure. It would never, it certainly would never be medical. Um, I think that uh, the book that I really have always loved is uh, 1984. You know, I read it first in high school. I've read it a couple times since then. I just think it is, uh, uh, you know, it's sort of a triumph of anti-totalitarianism in terms of literature, but I also think that, you um, It reminds us of the distortions that we're all capable of and the way that we can convince ourselves of things that are not true. So even in medicine, you know, we go for a long time thinking that a certain treatment must be so, this must be the way we do things. And it's not so. So I I think it's really important to always be skeptical. And so I think 1984, Far and Away, is one of my favorite books.
0: Well, along those lines, what is some of the best advice you've received along the course of your career, whether it was as a learner or as a teacher?
3: Hmm. Probably as a learner is always to, and, and I think I've said this before to, to trainees. Um, I certainly know I've said it around my colleagues, but nobody sets out to be a crack addict is, what, mm-hmm. is probably the thing that I remember the most. And I think my, the professor at the time was trying to remind us to be empathic about the condition that you find the patient in at that time because nobody set out to be a person with diabetes with an amputation nobody set out to be you know you can almost fill in anything there but we were yeah. talking about it like psychiatrists right <laughs> <laughs> right nobody set out to be um whatever place you find them when they come to you in the office but you have to meet them where you are in order to try and help them so I try and keep that in mind, and keep that front and center.
0: I think that's great advice. Uh, my team was has been struggling uh, at cash lack uh, in it, at times cash with lack. very difficult patients, and thinking about how did this person get to be that difficult patient that everybody right. knows and right. is kind of lamenting to have on their service. Uh, right. that that's a good point.
3: Kind mm-hmm. of, which is not to say. Which is not to say that I'm not human like everybody else and that, you know, we all have patients on our list that we kind of, we see them and we go, oh, we kind of cringe that they're coming in today. But it doesn't matter. It's nothing's going to save you from having to go into the room. So you might as well keep some positive thoughts in your head.
0: Okay. Stuart's favorite question. Stuart, you want to ask it?
1: Tell us something about yourself that I personally will never forget.
3: (laughs) That you personally will never forget. Huh. For about a year in high school, I was a DJ.
0: Oh, <laughs> like,
2: yeah. Uh, ah, good answer. <laughs> we and that's did. the single greatest thing I've ever heard in my
3: entire life. <laughs> we we <laughs> did. A, a buddy and I, we were spending every single penny on records. We played a few parties. We were sort of the local we were the kid who had we were the kids who had like the newest music and we would make a couple mixtapes for people. Nice. It was a short lived career once my parents found out what my allowance was really going to. <laughs>
2: I beg of you, please tell me you had a DJ name. <laughs>
3: I did not. It's, oh, I you're was, killing me. My, <laughs> career was, my career was too short-lived, you know? Like, oh, I wasn't you, able to carry it out and, and, and really let the oh, monster grow inside of me. I, just but, you just broke my heart. You, I know, so now like
1: depression. you missed, I so you missed your calling. Commodore, Marius Commodore?
0: I mean, come on. Now that...
1: <laughs>
2: MMC, it's right there. It writes it's, itself, Marius. It's in front of
0: your face.
3: Does. I know it does.
0: <laughs> well, now that Paul is sufficiently depressed... I think we should. I think we should move uh, on to expert. the depression questions. Which us
3: to why we're all here, yeah. That's right.
0: Yeah. Oh, man. I
1: think we're done. We'll just call it a night right there.
2: <laughs> Paul, would you like to start us off? Sure. So I I think maybe one of the first questions I have is you, is you have a patient in your office and you have the suspicion for depression. Perhaps their, you know, PHQ-2 is, is positive. Um. Before you actually start really digging into the diagnosis, is there any sort of routine lab work or, or workup that you do um, prior to actually sort of further investigating a, a diagnosis of depression?
3: You know, the the book would say that you should screen them for thyroid, screen them for thyroid abnormalities. Um, screen people for adrenal insufficiency, diabetes, particularly if the patient complains of a lot of fatigue. But I have to say that in general, I have, I have found those to be low yield. I mean, the reason that I would screen for those abnormalities often in primary care is mostly because so many of our patients have those illnesses. But I tend to not necessarily think automatically about screening out patients' medical conditions for uh, when I'm I'm considering a diagnosis of depression. And I know that is, A, completely not evidence-based, B, completely antithetical to what the ACP and the APA screening guidelines say. But I guess I've just found them to be low yield. If a person comes to me saying they're gaining a lot of weight, they're losing their hair and they have edema, then I might screen them for thyroid abnormalities in addition to treating their depression, but those are the things that it is said you should treat, you should screen for. I can't, nec- I can't tell you that I do them incredibly consistently.
0: I think a lot of those patients would have other signs and symptoms of adrenal insufficiency or diabetes
3: or thyroid. Most certainly, but the book says you should. So, you know, we try to be children of the book. But- <laughs> yes,
0: yes. Well, I, I wanted to ask a little bit then, when you are approaching somebody that you th- you think might have depression, where do you like to start? Uh, are there tools or questionnaires that you would recommend that are easy f- to use?
3: You know, in the literature, the, particularly in the primary care literature, the PHQ-9 has really kind of roared to prominence. And frankly, I would say that there is no reason that you shouldn't use the PHQ-9 um, it can be used to diagnose depression, to track depression, to track improvement of symptoms, um, and it has a decent coverage of symptom domain. So I actually think the PHQ-9 is pretty good. Um, I often, for myself, use the Beck Depression Inventory. Um, I think a lot of a lot because I was when I was training, we tended to use it a lot. Um, So, I can't necessarily say that it's better than any other. In fact, there have been a couple of meta-analyses that have been done um, of the BEC versus the PHQ-9 versus a couple of other questionnaires, and frankly, the PHQ-9 has never been found to be inferior to any of those more complicated scales. In general, I would just say anything that you should that you use should be relatively short. The PHQ nine fits that category. So does the back depression inventory. And a self-report is easier to administer. You know, the patient you can tell the patient, whenever you come back to me next while you're waiting to be triaged, you can do this in the waiting room. So it gives them something rather than just looking at Sanjay Gupta. Is Sanjay Gupta in every waiting room or just our waiting room? (laughs) I I think that instead of having to just look at Sanjay Gupta, they can actually do something that contributes to their treatment. So I like the PHQ-9. I like the Beck Depression Inventory. Those are probably the two that I spend um, most of my time using.
1: How did we include Sanjay Gupta into this? Uh
0: well, he's a famous doctor.
1: Oh, is he checking in for and depression?
3: he's on every single one of those, like, never-ending recordings in everybody's waiting room. I, I, I don't know. Maybe not yours. Maybe you've been saved from that. But certainly in our waiting room, there's, like, this never-ending loop. And Sanjay Gupta is on every hour, like a hit song. <laughs> mm,
1: I think we have the Learning Channel on ours.
0: Ka- Cashlack has HGTV play. HG-
1: that's right. That's right. That's HGTV. what I see. HGTV. I'd
3: yeah. almost prefer that. That would be
2: so much better. <laughs> yes,
0: oh my God, that would be so much better. <laughs> we haven't been giving our patients any relevant information while they're in the waiting that's room. Right. Maybe they're, that's right. Maybe that's why they're not depressed yeah. when they see us, though.
3: <laughs> right. So this is where the PHQ-9 can fit in nicely. You know, it takes maybe 10 minutes to do it. Uh, there are, Sometimes I've often thought whether or not a good... Uh, screening tool also would be trying to figure out how long it takes people to do the PHQ-9. Because I've often found that if you keep having to go back in the room and they're not done yet with their PHQ-9, it's sort of a bad sign. I'll call it Marius's sign once it's validated. <laughs> but uh, it, it uh, I've often found that giving them something to do can be very helpful while they're waiting. And that's why I like those screens
0: how about the geriatric depression scale? It's also relatively short. And, uh, personally, I use it, uh, when, when I'm working up dementia, but is that something that you use for select patients? yeah,
3: I definitely use it for almost all of my geriatric patients. Um, so, you know, loosely defined as patients 70 and over. Um, so I, I use that Pretty regularly, I would say that I use the other two more regularly. But in older patients, I'll tend to use the geriatric depression scale, and, and, and again, it is uh, self-report, short, and it can be used to track the um, track the progress of symptoms.
2: All right, and so after you've you've done all the lab work, you found out that the patient has a normal ferritin. Um, you feel fairly confident in your <laughs> diagnosis of depression. Um, thanks Paul. So how, you know, I'm, I'm here for you, Stuart. So how, <laughs> how do you sort of choose an initial agent? So, you know, it's the HRQ says the second generation antidepressants, um, all have fairly similar efficacy and about the same response rate. So how do you, how do you pick an agent for depression initially? And, and do you do anything to sort of incorporate shared decision making into that decision?
3: So the shared decision-making is a double-edged sword. Obviously, I think you, I definitely um, use shared decision-making with every conversation about starting um, an antidepressant. Um, A, to get buy-in, B, to allow the patient to feel like you're not sort of pushing them towards medication. Cause if there's a complaint that I sometimes that I often that rather I'll often get is that patients feel like their doctor pushed them into doing and into doing medication when they might not necessarily have been comfortable with it. So I think it aids rapport. It helps with answering the patient's questions, but the double-edged sword is that um, I often find that patients will focus very much on the side effects of medications as opposed to the potential benefits. And and I have not found that frankly, when I tell patients about other kinds of medications. So shared decision-making is kind of the cornerstone of initiating treatment, but I have found that it can be be a double-edged sword. The other thing that I think is important is expectation setting. So it's really important to let the patient know things are not gonna get better very rapidly to sort of give them an outline of what feeling better will feel like to them and and particularly with respect to time course and so time course is something that i focus a lot on and then i also focus a lot on not stopping medication you know something like 25 percent of people stop their medication within the first week and another and in total maybe 50 percent of people stop their medications within the first three months. So what you're basically getting is 50% of people stopping medication before medication can even be effectively thought to found to have succeeded or failed. So I try and do a lot of expectation setting.
0: Some places have have uh, guidelines where you're really supposed to call at two weeks, check in with the patient. How are you doing on the medication? Do you have any side effects? You might be able to coach them through them. And also, you can potentially go to the next step in the dose, or at least that's my practice, to go up on the next step in the dose at two weeks and then see them back in a, one month uh, when they're on the medication, just to try to prevent that, that early dropout.
3: That is certainly what the, um, that is certainly what the um, guidelines say that you should do. Your question, forgive me, I cut across you. Do I have a specific?
0: Is, well, I was going to say, is there, what's your tact? What have you found is practical? Because that two-week phone call, it's kind of hard to, do you, do you do that or do you have a system set up in your practice to to kind of make sure patients aren't stopping at that one or two-week point?
3: I think what I try to do really, and, and because the, when I see patients for psychiatric reasons in our clinic, I try to... Have enough slack in my psychiatric schedule that I could bring people back in two to three weeks. So I def- I tried to physically bring people back in two to three weeks. As a pr- at a practical level, that is very hard. If you have a a, a decent or a nascent collaborative care system within your clinic, um, all the evidence suggests that just that phone conversation by somebody a phone conversation with somebody who has some comfort and familiarity with taking care of psychiatric patients um, will suffice. That person does not need to physically be seen back in the office. But I would say I try to physically bring them back within two to three weeks at the outset. But it can be difficult. I think at a a practical level, I would say most patients are coming back between four and six weeks. Uh, That's certainly not Consistent with the guidelines, but I think it's probably consistent with real life.
2: So i I made a rookie mistake and asked you I think three questions at the same time. So so going back to initial agent choice, you, know, you mentioned uh, sort of the role of pure decision making. What other factors play into sort of what the what the first thing that you choose for a patient is?
3: Uh, you, you know, uh, I happen to practice in a clinic right now where there are a lot of patients who are fairly indigent. And so that so cost becomes a very important driver. Um, so in that regard, the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors are far and away um, my number one choice. Um, within that group, the side effect profile, all things being equal, um, would be would be sort of the second best, the second choice. The third choice, however, the third. Um, thing that I would think about also is, does this patient have a history of success with a particular agent in the past? So if that person has a particular success agent in the past, I would go immediately to that, no matter what category of antidepressant comes from. Because then you can um, navigate through Questions of side effects, both expected and unexpected. Um, you know that the patient has tolerated it, probably at higher doses than you're going to introduce. So, previous success is probably the number one th- is the thing that I think about all the time. But side effects and cost are probably the primary practical drivers these days.
1: So, uh, across the board, is any one uh, antidepressant agent any more effective than another?
3: So the the data has unfortunately seemed to demonstrate that there really is no superior agent. Um, There is a signal in the data that escitalopram, more commonly known as Lexapro, um, may be a better antidepressant in that the time to remission is about a week faster. The time to response is about a week faster as well. Um, but if you then look at large meta-analyses, that's, that signal is not consistent. Okay. Um, the SNRIs, your selective norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors, have been consistently shown to be better agents in patients who have some kind of neuropathic pain syndrome. Um, So you can group that group of sort of diabetic neuropathy. Go ahead.
1: I was going to say, you said selective norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors. Is that like Stratera?
3: No, 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 no. SNRIs. So, so your so duloxetine. Diloxi- so and venlafaxine. So
1: the the I'm sorry the the serotonin norepinephrine, reuptake inhibitors. Oh, that... sorry. Okay,
3: sorry, okay. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, yes, 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 yes. I, I was mixing my agents there. That's okay. Which that's okay. I suppose it's a metaphor in my mind for the fact that the data shows that they're not not none none right. is better than the other, but. Yes, the SNRIs have sh- have been shown to be better in patients who have some kind of underlying neuropathic pain syndrome, but that is the only consistent signal of superiority okay. among these agents.
1: What about for say weight loss? If someone has a has a history of of trouble weight with weight loss, is there any evidence to, to suggest, say, Welbutrin or Bupropion is a better agent?
3: Um. So you're asking if the person has lost weight as part of their illness.
1: Well no, let's say let's say you have an obese patient who's depressed. It, does that ah. ever does that ever come into your thought process to consider an agent that's more associated with weight loss like bupropion?
3: It certainly does come into my thinking. I have to say that the aggregate data about bupropion is not as exciting for weight loss. It is much more weight Neutral okay. is probably a better description of it. So patients definitely do not gain weight. Some lose weight, but it is not necessarily as robust. If you look at all the data, um, okay. as as the as as uh, you sort of think of it as a medication that where people lose weight, but it really, in in actuality, doesn't appear to be that
1: way. I see that. And for your geriatric patients, do you say more consider, say, mirtazapine? Or do you have an agent that you, that you consider more often?
3: Not necessarily. Um, I actually think about SSRIs more often in geriatric patients. Um, they're, they're, they're often afflicted by vegetative symptoms, and SSRIs help vegetative symptoms much more quickly. Um, than some of the other agents. So, for instance, your mirtazapine, um, they they often are as sleep-inducing as a mirtazapine can be. Um, They can cause weight gain in ways that mirtazapine uh, does as well. However, mirtazapine does seem to um, cause a much faster recovery of appetite So if you look at weight gain SSRIs versus mirtazapine over, say, a 12-month period, the weight gain is about the same in the aggregate, but the mirtazapine weight gain tends to be sooner than the SSRI weight gain.
1: So at at what point do you consider um, augmentation or using an additional agent on top of the initial monotherapy?
3: So... uh, we've actually had you know in the past few years for most most particularly the star d study or you know sequenced treatment alternatives to reduce depression they did a very good job in a very naturalistic way of looking at this question of augmentation and it turns out that augmentation was equal so so just to remind your listeners star d started out by starting everyone on citalopram And then those who did not remit were randomized to venlafaxine, sertraline, and bupropion. And it turns out all those agents were equal. Then those patients who did not um, remit were then placed on bupropion um, augmentation. And it turns out that bupropion augmentation about a third of patients remitted there. So in all levels of the STARDE study, about a third of patients remitted. Um, The general practice is that if a patient has some response, so say a 50% decrease in their PHQ or a 50% decrease in in their Beck Depression inventory, that augmentation is probably equal to changing to another agent. So for me, I tend to see if a patient has some response, but not robust response, then I will use an augmentation strategy. And bupropion tends to be my first-line augmentation strategy, although there are you know, atypical antipsychotics, for instance, quetiapine and aripiprazole are also FDA-approved for augmentation strategies. But sometimes but not every primary care practitioner is um, comfortable with an atypical antipsychotic.
1: So I'm aware of an article that was published in 2010 that uh, there's, there's a few articles that look at, look at this for using uh, adjunctive treatment with bupropion for, to, to remit some of the sexual side effects associated with SSRIs. Have you seen this in your practice at all? Have you seen any improvement in some of the sexual side side effects for SSRIs with bupropion?
3: I'll answer this in two ways. One, bupropion, the, the studies that have been done on this question do not actually seem to bear out the idea that bupropion augmentation can improve sexual side effects. Certainly, bupropion as an agent by itself has essentially no sexual side effects. That said, and I don't know if this is just, what is it, selective memory, that when I have done bupropion augmentation, I have found that patients have complained less of sexual side effects. But to be clear, the data seems to indicate that the idea of using bupropion to remit sexual side effects of an SSRI doesn't actually have much evidentiary basis.
1: Mm.
0: And I just want to try to... A recap, a little bit of what what you've said so far for the listeners, and just to make sure make sure that I'm following too. Well, in the STAR D trial, and I think some of the other research studies, a response was defined as a fifty percent decrease in whatever the baseline score was. Like if you were using Correct. in that study, they were using they weren't using the PHQ nine, but let's say they someone had a score of fourteen on the PHQ nine. If they dropped that by fifty percent, that would be a, a response. And a remission Correct. is some arbitrary low number where the patient's not having minimal symptoms. Uh, and I
3: think technically for the PHQ-9, for instance, I think the score is five. Five, okay. Yeah, which is remission, yes.
0: I think that'll be helpful for people. And, and, and what you were saying is if, if people have a response, so 50% reduction on the PHQ-9, but they're not at that less than five, they're not in a complete remission— you might think about augmenting therapy with one of these agents we've been talking about, bupropion or um, potentially um, aripiprazole or bilify. Is that, am I on, am I following?
3: (laughs) Correct. You're, you're, you are picking up what I'm putting down. Good job, Matt.
0: What is another agent other than bupropion is, are there other agents that you think that a general primary care or internist should be comfortable using?
3: So, um again star d is very helpful in this regard um mirtazapine was used as an augmentation agent in that study um i think also um t3 triiodothyronine, iodothyronine was actually used as an augmentation agent in that study um i would i i mention those only because i think that Internists tend, we all, as internists, we all tend to have more familiarity using those kinds of medications. However, I would say that the T3 augmentation strategy has, is, is somewhat, um, is somewhat dubious in my view. There are other things that you can use to augment, for instance, um, but then we're starting to get a little bit more into your specialty psychiatric um, strategies. Lithium, for instance, has been used as an augmentation strategy. Um, It's a very powerful, it's a very good antidepressant, but it does come with its own set of baggage.
0: I think in STAR-D they also use nortriptyline, but uh, one of the things in in, uh, the second step, they added to citalopram, they added cognitive behavioral therapy. We haven't really talk, uh, yes. talked talked about non-pharmacologic treatment, but maybe this is a, a time to talk about that a little bit. How much are you using that in your practice? And are there certain patients where you will use that as monotherapy?
3: The guidelines say, and I think the evidence pretty much supports this, that in your patients who are on that borderline score between mild and moderate. So your mild to moderate depression, that you can offer a a psychotherapeutic intervention instead of a a pharmacologic intervention, and those are equal in terms of efficacy. Um, Then the, the effectiveness of psychotherapy as a standalone strategy Basically, tapers off once you get to your moderate to severe depressions. Now, as a practical, you know, it's a, you ask an important question: How much am I using it in my practice? And frankly, the answer is not as much as I would like to, for two reasons: the availability of trained therapists is is is, is real, really leaves something to be desired, and and I found that. You know, I've worked now in a couple of different cities, and it was this. It's the same in each circumstance. Um, many therapists do not take insurance, so many are cash only, and you you know, a hundred dollars an hour for twelve weeks. You know, soon we're talking about real money. Um, so the the availability of the therapists is a challenge. The other thing too is CBT. As it has been properly studies is a very organized manualized modality some there are many therapists in the community you know all of whom you know have the best of intentions who do not necessarily deliver the most consistent manualized CBT so patients will so some therapists will say that their work is influenced by CBT. I'm not sure what influence means, you know, I mean, you know, my I could say my anti my anti hypertensive therapy is influenced by beta blockers, but I don't know what that means. So uh, so they the difficulties that I have found has been availability in terms of cost um, and numbers, but also just you know, what makes for a good therapist and how do we know that therapist A is good versus therapist B? You know, just because a person charges $150 an hour doesn't necessarily make them a good therapist. So there is a fair amount of trial and error there. But yes, I actually do try to offer psychotherapy to as many of my patients as I think will be able to access it. And frankly, that probably means that I end up offering it to fewer than I should because of my own biases in terms of my thoughts about their ability to access it.
0: I have one one comment and, and then a, co- a question to follow up. So I, I, I've noticed that patients, you're asking a depressed person to look through a gigantic list of people that are going to charge them a lot of money to talk to them. <laughs> it's kind of a, a you're, you're, you're fighting an uphill battle there. I, I find it's really, I'm like, did you call? And they're like, no. Yeah. And I, I get it. I mean, they're going to, they're, they have no motivation. They're depressed and then they're, they're not motivated to give someone a whole bunch of money and it's not easy to find people. There's, there's usually long waits as well. But my, my question was going to be, uh, in other areas, we've talked to people about sleep. There's online CBT for that. And I know that for certain pain conditions, there's online CBT available. Is there, as far as you know, for depression? Are there online courses or resources that people can use for, for this?
3: You know, I'm not aware of them. Um, I am aware of some of these online CBT courses being used more, you know, uh, more so particularly among, you know, it's odd to say among your managed Medicaid populations which is uh, you know which is interesting Um, I know for instance that and and I'm not endorsing a program here but just to say that I know that for instance um, there are programs administered by the insurance company Magellan so Magellan for instance has an an online suite of therapy um, tools that its patients can that their patients can access I'm not specifically aware of that, although there is a lot more talk about just in general harnessing the power of telepsychiatry, Um, but I'm not aware of sort of good, validated, organized programs that the general public can access.
0: I guess the only other thing that I do uh, uh, recommend for patients, and I have no idea if this is part of the guidelines as well, it just kind of goes along. A lot of these people have pain as well. I'm always trying to get them to do some sort of activity, trying to get them to work on their sleep. Are these things that you're doing as well for depression? Is that part of the guideline-directed therapy?
3: Oh, definitely. Um, I think that sleep hygiene is so critical. Um, uh, you know, trying to trying to get the patient to um, change some of those maladaptive behaviors that they are in control of. I try and couch it as a self empowerment tool. You know, to say that hey, I can give you medication, but here's something that you can do, and that you don't need my help to do it. So I definitely do. Th- I definitely um, do a lot of counseling about sleep hygiene. Um, I have had less success, I will say with trying to um, trying to help patients um, do more activity in terms of, for instance, physical activity. What I can say that I do try to do is I try and strategize with the patient about planned outings for themselves. So for instance, if they know that a particular, uh, if they know that they, for instance, they like the St. Patrick's Day Parade, you know, I try and talk with them about the fact that, well, you should go to that. And <laughs> how are you going to get there? What's your transportation? Are you going to talk to somebody about accompanying you? And try and game plan for those things. takes a little while for you to develop that rapport with a patient so that you can know their interests. But I do try and get the patients to do a little bit more in terms of planned activity that they enjoy.
2: And as part of sort of the, the comprehensive plan for treating, and, spe- and specifically with the medications, I guess, sort of how long do you treat for initially? And, you know, and can you talk to us a little bit about titration as well?
3: Um, I try to titrate. Um, I try and use the start, low, go slow um, philosophy with all patients, so not just your geriatric patients, which, are, which is how we tend to think of that, uh, which is where we tend to think of that approach. Um, I try to give the patient a titration instruction, usually around two weeks. So I'll tell the patient, you know, you're coming back to see me in a month. Why don't you increase this dose at this particular point? And I try and write my prescription to reflect that. Um, I try to tell them that we're going to try and get to a particular target dose. The classic teaching has always been, that a patient, that you want the patient to be at least on a maximally tolerated dose for six to eight weeks. So for instance, citalopram, a target dose might be 30 milligrams. So you want the patient to be on 30 milligrams for at least six to eight weeks. However, the data suggests that um, there are positive effects even out to 12 weeks. So the contemporary thinking is that you want to give a patient a robust 12 week trial. Of course, you have to do a lot of expectations management, a lot of telephone management of side effects and questions the patient might have about the medication. But I I would say 12 weeks at at a reasonably tolerable dose.
0: I see a fair amount of patients that they they just seem to have been on citalopram, forty milligrams, and they're on it. They're not questioning that they're on it, and they just keep taking it. At what point should we think about withdrawing or weaning patients off that agent?
3: So there are sort of two parts to the two parts to the answer, maybe three. Uh, so one, if a patient has had a single episode of depression, their relapse likelihood within five years is 50 percent two episodes it's about 70 percent, and if you've had more than three episodes of depression essentially relapse is assured within the next five years so take that into account as your first step Uh, the research now seems to indicate that at least nine months perhaps 12 for a first episode Beyond that, frankly, the data is not very good in terms of telling us how long we should keep a patient on an agent. Um, There have been studies which seem to indicate that the longer a patient is on their medication, the less likely they are to relapse compared with cohorts who, for instance, are tapered at one and a half years, two years, two and a half years. So it, this question of what to do beyond a year, particularly for your, first episode, for, your more, for your non-first episode patient, is really kind of unclear. This is where shared decision-making really comes into play. Um, I have had patients that go, you know, Doc, I didn't like how I felt when I was depressed. This medicine has helped me. If it's all the same to you, why don't we keep going on with it? That is the minority of patients, I will say. The majority of patients will try to taper off the medication after about a year, because I tend to be fairly honest with patients and tell them we have evidence out to a year. You know, you've had four episodes of depression. I would say that you should stay on this as long as you can. Um, But the evidence base for how long patients should remain on medications isn't the best.
0: I wanted to just uh, briefly ask you about um, screening. Uh, I, I've heard that you're always supposed to just make sure, and I i have to say I don't always remember to do this, uh, just screen for manic, prior manic episodes before you're doing a treatment course. That's, sure. Is that, is that potentially low yield?
1: Uh, no. <laughs> it's low yield until you have one. Yeah. yeah
2: right. 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 Can you please um, justify my bad behavior, Dr.
3: Right, uh, right. That's what I said. That's what I think I just heard. And the answer is no, I can't. I can't justify your bad behavior, Dr. Wado. It's just I, a
0: matter. I, I'm rolling the dice. It's just a matter of time.
3: It, you know, <laughs> no, no I, I would say that um
0: i will say most of my patients are in their 70s so if they were if they had bipolar we probably would have seen it by now right <laughs> they should have declared
3: themselves by now right <laughs> um I, I will say there is a good validated screen for um bipolar disorder it's the mdq the mood disorders questionnaire um and you can just uh google it and you know well i hope that you know maybe we'll put, no we'll put it not. in the show notes Right. So it's the mood disorders questionnaire and the sensitivity of it is fairly high um, so that a patient who has a positive MDQ has a fairly good, a negative, a negative MDQ essentially means that this patient has no bipolar disorder. Um, So I tend to use the MDQ in any patient who I have some inkling, some suspicion about. Um, In general, Though you can also just ask, you know, have you had the elevated mood, dis- mood experiences for two weeks? Have you ever been hospitalized for something other than depression? And that is, you know, and documenting that is probably sufficient. Um, most patients who are bipolar spend most of their sick time depressed. And so they will tend to report that more. And, and so if you at least ask the question, then you can at least say that, you know, you, you did do a screening. But I have tended to use the mood disorders questionnaire with fair regularity for ruling out bipolar disorder.
2: I was just Along sort of similar lines, it's screening for suicidality. I, I wonder if you could sort of share with us your approach for that, what kind of questions you ask and how you ask them, What um, who you worry about.
3: You know, I think I worry about, I mean, the demography is a very good guide here. We know that males Tend to complete suicide more. Um, we know that a person who has had a past attempt at suicide is very likely to have a, a future attempt at suicide. Um, uh, white males uh, tend to have a, 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 tend to um, complete suicide more, as well as patients who have recently had a traumatic event, loss of a child. Loss, uh, loss of a child, uh, loss of a marriage, loss of a job. So the demography will sort of help you guide. Will help guide you in terms of who you ask more pointed questions towards. Um, I just simply ask: Have you ever thought about hurting yourself? Have you ever thought about killing yourself? How often? How would you do it? You know what keeps you from doing it? Um, patients who have patients who cite children or religious faith tend to have a much less likelihood of actually going on to attempt a suicide. Uh, Interestingly, being married with children is more protective for women than for men. Uh, Women will cite their children um, and their husbands as reasons to not commit suicide. Men will cite their wives being able to be there for their children as a reason why they would suicide. Um, so that is a, that, that is just an what about, odd little wrinkle, but what about it's something cats? to keep
1: it. What about cats? Is there any <laughs> cats?
2: And does the number of cats matter? Please tell me.
3: <laughs> um, <laughs> no comment.
1: <laughs> I think if you own cats, that's like kind of a warning flag right there.
3: <laughs> so, so, the, so I use the demography and I, and I very, and I'm very, upfront about the, I'm very upfront in asking about the question with every single person.
1: So one thing that's really plagued us as primary care providers is just how difficult it is to get our patients to see specialized psychiatric care. And sometimes when they see it, the care that they uh, get is sometimes dubious. So what, what can we do as a busy primary care provider in order to meet the needs of our patients before they see the specialized and maybe the appropriate
3: psychiatrist? Hmm. Um, this, this, this sort of, this, this waves right into the deep right here. Uh, this, Mm. this is probably the greatest barrier. This is probably the greatest problem that primary care doctors have in terms of, um, getting proper treatment for psychiatric patients. And And, and, unfortunately it's a nationwide problem. Um, the things that you can do one If you can, if you can, you know, hiring, I actually think it is worth it to hire dedicated staff, um, perhaps a staff of two persons, one or two persons to actually do ongoing uh, management and outreach. For your psychiatric patients, so that this that your this staff would handle a, a pan would would essentially handle your panel of psychiatric patients to make sure, and not doing many sort of highly sophisticated things, but making sure the patients are going to their appointments, they're taking their medications, they are attempting to find the psychiatric care because, as um, Matt mentioned, you know. So, it, it can be daunting to flip through this large book of psychiatric providers. And so sometimes just having that extra push, if you can afford it, you know, if you can afford to have it in your practice is, is important.
1: Yeah. And um, so, I was, was going to say during a future round table, we could talk about different coding tips in order to get, to get this um, paid for. Yeah, correct. exactly.
3: Right. There have been some, there, there are some new CPT codes mm-hmm usually in the setting of your more formalized collaborative care systems so you know so either a practice that has an embedded social worker behavioral health specialist and then maybe has a consulting psychiatrist um so getting to know the psychiatric practitioners in your area is probably an important thing to do um, so that you can bounce questions and, and and build your own capacity as a psychiatric provider because you're not going to be able to refer every single patient. Let me see what else, you know, the the, more training. Um, there are, for instance, prime, there are psychiatry for primary care conferences. So, you know, you have to sort of bone up for yourself in terms of what you can do in treating these kinds of patients. Um, but I have to say that, you know, the, 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 The options for doing more as a primary care doctor are limited out there, limited by access, limited by resources, you know, and just to put in, you know, just to get on a soapbox until we as a nation get a little bit more serious about funding mental health care and funding it equal, at a level equal to the way we fund, um, well, first of all, we have to get more serious about primary care, first of all, and then funding our mental health systems at a level equal to how we would like to have our primary care infrastructure funded we're going to have this continual problem
1: so th- this is at least my last question before i have some questions from facebook and maybe it's a little bit of a, of a divergence uh, a left uh, um from from stage left i guess if you will but what are some of the warning signs that uh, you might see amongst colleagues, and how would you pur- how would you recommend pursuing those or helping them to seek care? Hmm. So that,
3: that is that is interest. That is an interesting question. Um, I think changes in their professional behavior and demeanor. So higher levels of irritability than normal. Um, if your colleague used to be. You know, is the person who um, they're always they used to. They're always on time. They're always prepared. They're they're often calling back their patients very quickly, and all of a sudden that starts to slip. So, there you know, decreases in their professional conscientiousness. I think is what is probably the thing that I worry about the most um, mm-hmm. in terms of colleagues. Uh, as far as helping them to seek care. I, I think the direct approach is best, you know. I, I think sometimes we forget that we are human beings too, and and this is a human activity. So you pull aside a colleague and you say, "I've been concerned, you know. Is mm-hmm. everything okay? You know. You don't say, you know, you know, how much alcohol are you drinking? Like right. you, know, you know that that doesn't that doesn't go that doesn't go over very well. But you say, this is what you know. You know, I have been concerned. I am worried." How are you doing? And 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 uh, allow them to open up to you. You can't necessarily allow them to come to you because, as doctors, we're not necessarily inclined to do that. But you go to the colleague who you're concerned with and you say, "Hey, I'm concerned," and allow them to open up to you. I have to say that I've not had this experience in my professional life. Maybe I'm almost a little thankful about that, but. The, the the advice that you hear, particularly from professional groups, is be very very direct.
1: So, so I'll say from my experience of I've actually treated this a few times with colleagues, and I found that what works best is actually to, to consistency in following up with them. So, checking in with them, making sure that they've accessed the resources that you've that you've uh, brought to their uh, disposal, and then sometimes even taking them to the resources is what I found to be. Um, very helpful in helping them to seek care. And I've been, at least at this time, 100% successful in, in getting these cases taken care of with very good results. We're
3: glad to hear it. I, I think that certainly um, if a physician, is in a, a physician or a nurse or a, a staff member in your clinic is in a position where they're willing to open up, then I think they certainly are very motivated to seek treatment. So I... I I have to say that I have yet to actually. No, that's not true. I did have one, um, not a physician colleague, but I did have a staff member who had a, a psychiatric problem and wanted help treating it. And 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 it was, um, frankly, we we thought that the the best the best service I did for him was actually to have him seek psychiatric care somewhere else because it was clear that following up on our campus around our offices, was more difficult for him than seeking care outside. And so once he sought care outside, things got a lot better.
0: And I, I think that's probably one of the big barriers for a lot of healthcare providers that have mental illness. They they don't want people to see them getting help uh, going to a psychiatrist's office. And so there there probably is a barrier there just because of concerns about their ability to carry on in the profession if they're having those issues. So it's, I think it's a really tricky problem.
3: It is a tricky problem, but I I, I also think that, I also think that, you know, congratulations to your colleague here uh, for being able to take on this problem, you know, as, as well as he has, because it's necessary, you know, physicians, physicians get sick. And so that when they do, they need the help.
0: Yeah, Stewart's not. Uh, since I've known him, he's not the kind of guy to just let stuff go. No, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> no. Well, well great. <laughs> he will. He will say something. Um...
3: Well, well,
2: good. <laughs> well, sir... And then drive you to the appointment. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In fact, right. I'll
1: I'll go in there with you. In fact, uh, we'll, we'll just have a shared decision making <laughs> together. Right.
2: <laughs> no, that's excellent, Stuart.
1: So uh, 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 I I've got a couple of questions from Facebook. If you have the time, these are really short. Um, oh, sure. So w- w- one is, is uh, it, it says, so if you have a, a teenage patient who has a prior history of suicide attempt, um, and let's say they were taking their antidepressant medication, but they dropped off, they stopped taking it, and then during that time of they're off their medication, they had another suicide attempt, is it safe to put them back on the same medication that they were on before?
3: So just to make sure I'm getting the question, they were on an agent and stopped it, and the suicide attempt occurred while they were on. Off the agent, correct? Yes, yes, yes. It is safe to put them back. And in, in fact, um, you you. In, in fact, um, you know, a number of years ago, when there was some controversy up that led to the black box warning on um, antidepressant inserts for suicidality among adolescents, there was a noticeable decrease. Uh, no, adolescents and young adults, rather, there was a noticeable decrease in prescribing of antidepressants to that age group and a noticeable concurrent increase in completed suicides among that age group. So... The, the the aggregate data as well as the individual data would support putting that patient back on their back on their medication.
1: That's 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 good to hear. And then the other questions were answered in the middle of our discussion here. I have one last question. I have no idea what he means by this. The question is: Did it uh, depress you? I, I'm guessing he means did, the discussion we had. Did, did it depress you? Did it depress you?
0: I. I, I'm,
1: I'm not sure if that's... that. That's not a good question. Yeah. Sorry, Dave.
0: Sorry sorry about that. Yeah. Um, it did
1: uh,
3: It did often.
1: <laughs> okay, good. I will let him know it did I think, often.
0: I think we were mostly depressed that you don't have a DJ name. D- uh, yeah. If we go back.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: So the answer is yes. Okay,
1: yes. The answer is yes. DJ MC no longer exists.
0: Marius, could you... I, I think this is a good time to wrap up so that you can get some sleep before you're woken in the middle of the night by a crying child or or hopefully that's not still happening. But maybe he's it don't is text
3: me like that. No, he's, <laughs> he's sleeping. More. He's sleeping more. Thank you for. Thank you for asking.
0: OK, how about some take home points just to kind of wrap things up nicely for the audience here uh, about that you'd like them to remember when they're treating depression?
3: Um, I guess the first point would be it, are, it is really important to get into the habit of screening. Um, and the screening question is, you know, it, the screening questions are very simple. Do you feel depressed or do you feel, uh, or do you feel depressed or do you feel anhedonic? So screening is recommended, um, particularly in circumstances, the screening, the screening um, guidelines says, quote, in circumstances where you have the infrastructure to treat the patient. Um, and one can quibble over what that means, but get into the habit of screening, one. Two, antidepressants do work. So there are some doctors out there who just feel like, you know, antidepressants are the biggest uh, are the biggest placebo scam ever, um, ever committed against uh, the American people. And that's not true. Antidepressants do work, but it takes time and it takes a lot of expectations management with the patient in order to successfully treat. Three, early referral to a psychiatrist I think is important, particularly if you think that you're not making much progress. One, uh, it'll allow you to access that specialty care, and two, it'll allow for a lag. It'll allow... It means that the lag in getting to a practitioner will not be as impactful for the patient. And then four, I think it is important to actually um, measure your outcome. We would never have a patient come into the office and not check their blood pressure. We would never have a patient come into the office and they're being, and they're diabetic and we don't check their blood sugar. So we should measure depression if we're treating depression. Um, And I think that that will help normalize the process in the patient's mind. And then finally, our patients are great ambassadors for psychiatric care. So I also encourage patients to tell their family members, tell their friends that they were treated because you never know when that family member or friend can catalyze treatment in another family or friend or acquaintance who's really needing it.
0: All right. I think that's a great way to end the show. Thank you for all your advice on this. And uh, maybe we'll have you back to talk about anxiety because that's another topic that we've gotten a lot of requests for. Uh, It seems that people definitely, um, uh, hopefully it'll be a lot more comfortable treating this problem now. And uh, hopefully we can do the same for anxiety on a future episode. I'm, I'm anxious to talk about it.
3: I certainly, I certainly would love to. It is, a, it is a, actually a whole topic in and of itself, and I'd like to thank you for having me. i, I really appreciated it.
0: All right, Marius, Paul, uh, I, was, <laughs> I, I, like was I was, I was leaving. I was, I was. That was <laughs> straight. I was <laughs> just wanted to hang out there. We're expecting Paul to chime okay, in. Okay, goodbye. <laughs> yeah. No. Well,
2: thanks, Marius. That was great.
0: This has been another episode of The Curbsiders. All right. Bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. You can find show notes along with links to any articles, books, websites, or apps mentioned on the show at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast. We're committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge. So we want your input. Please send us an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. You can subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes. Or you can follow us on our page on Facebook or on Twitter, at The Curbsiders. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Watto.
1: And I'm Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham. Thank you for listening, and have a good night.
2: And I remain Dr. Paul Williams. Good night.
1: Oh, hi, Paul.